We've all done that thing of saying or doing something to our children that we promised our younger selves that we would never do when we grow up. It's that gradual but undeniable transformation into our own parents. But is that really such a bad thing? After all, it comes from a place of good intention and concern, and hopefully coloured in with the benefit of our own experiences, isn't it? Hello and welcome to the Study Sessions podcast. I'm Nathan, the founder of The Study Buddy and your host. In this, our third season of the podcast, we're chatting with parents, students and teachers to hear how things are going. Specifically, we're interested in the highs and lows, the trials and tribulations in the run-up to exams in 2022. We'll be covering everything from trouble getting going to burning the candle at both ends, from overzealous and anxious students to underperforming yet nonchalant ones. Through these shared real-world experiences, I hope that you'll take some comfort that you're not alone. And perhaps more importantly, I hope you'll also take away some insights and advice that can help you to support your own team, so that they'll not just survive the exams, but thrive in the preparation. So, if you're a parent, a carer or a teacher, be sure to subscribe. This week, I'm excited to be chatting with Sanjeev Baskar. The fact that he needs no introduction isn't going to stop me. In my head, I'm picturing myself like some poor man's Jonathan Ross. Sanjeev is, of course, D.I. Sunny Khan in the TV hit series Unforgotten, a particular favourite in the McGurl household. And also, he has a roll call of great shows, including TV's The Kumars and films such as Yesterday and Paddington 2. Comedian, presenter, writer, film, TV and stage actor, Sanjeev is also the dad to a GCSE-facing teen boy. I wonder, Sanjeev, is that perhaps the toughest role of all that you've taken on? Oh, by a very, very large margin. I mean, the big difference being, of course, one is work and the other one is you're impacting somebody, you know, for the rest of their lives. So, yeah, I mean, it's an incredible honour and a privilege to be a parent, I think. I mean, there's a lot of people on the planet who wish to be parents who can't for whatever reasons. And occasionally we see examples of parents who have that privilege and sort of abuse that privilege. I mean, nothing quite prepares you for the teenage years. <laughs> the kind of, it is like a kind of suspense, thriller, comedy, romance film mashed into one, which changes on a kind of hourly basis. But yeah, by far the biggest challenge and the greatest privilege. Exactly. So a rom-com where you really don't see that twist coming, where actually, despite all of the odds, they actually do become a proper card-carrying human. Yeah, they do. And, you know, that's the thing... I suppose it's tricky sometimes to keep your eye on the fact that it is a marathon. And, you know, one of the things I'm very aware of from my own experiences and through my experiences of being Chancellor at the University of Sussex is that at this stage, no matter how daunting this stage looks to the teenager and to the teenager's parents, it's one small part of the story and the story will continue no matter what. And, you know, in my own case, you know, my academic history is somewhat checkered. I mean, I managed to kind of work my way through to a degree, but it changed careers, what, 10, 12 years after that into what I do now, which is something I always wanted to do, but never took up the challenges or had the opportunities prior to that. So, you know, that was a huge life change for me. And nobody could have seen that during the pressures of the GCSEs, the A-levels and the degree. So there is a 
big story to tell. And so one of the things that I have to fight against is not getting too despondent when your kid isn't necessarily naturally academic or isn't as academic as you would like them to be. I was going to say, because I wonder what impact that has on your own outlook, that your own sort of career path took a, a more of a wiggly direction than perhaps you might have hoped, or perhaps even your parents hoped from outset. But I guess the way that transforms your aspirations for your own children. Well, I think that the thing that I come back to, I suppose where it has changed, is your child's happiness. I mean, I think as a parent, you are hardwired to look forwards the whole time and to be preparing the path for them. But actually, that path is going to be twisty and turning no matter what. You know, the future is unpredictable. And so teaching them a sense of adaptability or a sense of self-worth, I think, are the things that aren't taught in the curriculum. And I think they have to come from, you know, parents, family, friends and your support network. So although the academic element of it is undoubtedly important, I think it's not the only thing. So I think, you know, looking at their happiness and their mental well-being is something I think I'm probably far more aware of than my parents were about me and society was about kids you know when I was when I was little so that may be the big change I think. Because it's a temptation isn't it that, that as a parent if you if you can see them traveling down the path that you did yourself maybe not studying as hard as you ought to have done or taking on subjects that you didn't really like that we want to save them from those elephant traps and say don't do that there's danger lays ahead do this instead but as you say there's that element where you almost also need to help them to make these mistakes in sort of a safe environment so that they can learn from them and go on to great things themselves. Well I think generally we learn from our mistakes we don't really learn from our successes quite as much quite as quickly or as at such depth so I think that's where the resilience and the adaptability comes in but in a way you kind of have to be their safety net and one of the things that I think is difficult for kids I think it always was and it certainly was for me is you know, ensuring that learning is fun. I think that learning was never considered fun. It was considered work. And so being enthusiastic about learning is the thing that you want them to hang on to because certainly with A-levels, sixth form college I went to, and on my degree, the mature students did far better than any of the others because, you know, the rest of us didn't really know why we were there. We were just following the next step that we were supposed to. But the mature students had come back and they knew why they were there. And so, you know, they had either re-found or found for the first time a joy in learning, a purpose to the learning which wasn't merely vocational or to pass an exam. And if you can do both of those, as those mature students did, then you kind of hit the jackpot. And I think part of the difficulties that I see are actually no different to the difficulties that I saw and encountered when I was a kid, which is actually you're struggling through a lot of subjects that you don't really like. And to try to be enthusiastic about those subjects is hard enough, but there's a, a terrible knock-on effect to the subjects you do love because it all gets kind of moulded into kind of one sort of plasticine ball. So it's that. And, you know, going back again to what I was saying before, which is about ensuring that, you know, whatever their life is beyond these exams, whatever those exams are, is one that has support in it and that has love in it and that has consideration in it. We talk about it a lot don't we and certainly the news and the media seems to be so much more filled with stories and sort of these alerts about well-being and mental health but at the same time seem to be surrounded by 
teens and young people who are under immense pressure to perform and to get it right first time. You know, we have over many decades become more of a quantitative uh, rather than a qualitative society. And so it's, you know, it's league tables, it's percentages, it's marks out of 10. It's So, you know, we've slowly drifted to to that kind of being a measure of who we are and where we're at and our aspirations and and particularly where we sit in the hierarchy. And they're not entirely accurate or helpful in terms of who we are as human beings. It is an essential part, but it's not the only part. And things like mental health and compassion and kindness you know which would be it'd be abhorrent if we started to mark people out of 10 for, for their compassion you know how kind do you think he is well it's about seven seven out of ten I, I mean is that good i don't know so there is a real danger of that you know it's i remember when my son was much younger being born into the society that he's born into i remember asking him about a film he'd been see probably a pixar thing and i said so wh what did you think and he said, seven out of 10. I said, I, that hasn't told me anything. I don't know what you felt about it. I don't know what it's about. But that was the shorthand response. And I think that happens across society. And, you know, people are very swift to publish, you know, school league tables, the percentage of kids who got an A star, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's only one part of the story because the mental health of that kid getting that A-star, and then what happens to that kid post the A-star can be two completely different things. And, you know, there are different metrics to that. So I think, you know, it is a combination of the two. It is about keeping an eye on the exams and the grades and things, which are important because they shape your next steps. But it's also being aware that, you know, not to be kind of, I don't know, lulled or seduced into believing that that is the only metric. Because mm. as you say, I mean, so much of so much of these young people's lives, and actually all of our lives as well, is based on the number of likes, the thumbs up that you get. It's this this sort of snap view of popularity or of achievement and success, and they get twisted out of shape into one metric. So going back then and thinking about your own A levels, and you alluded to the fact that you maybe weren't as successful as you'd hoped at the time. What lessons did you learn from that period of time? What was that like for you? And, and how did that sort of shape then what you are like with your son? They weren't successful under any metric, actually, Nathan. There's <laughs> not a single metric that's been invented under which my A-levels were successful. <laughs> Swiping left all over the place. All over the place. You know, I chose A-levels that would please my parents. And even that was a compromise because obviously being a child of Asian parents, you know, doctor was at the very top of the tree. And, you know, it's a story that you may have heard, but it stretches back to when I was about three or four years old. And an uncle came to our house and said to me, well, young man, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, actor. And my dad said, it's pronounced doctor. <laughs> it goes back a long way. But I was not interested in biology enough. So the compromise for my parents was, OK, well, do something that will take you into a science of some kind, computer science was the big thing at that time, or engineering, or accountancy. Those were the big ones. I ended up doing maths, physics, and economics as my A-levels. Economics I quite liked, maths not so much, and <laughs> physics not so much. And so I managed to fail all of them, and then retook them a year later. But that then shaped what degree I could do. 
So I then did a diploma in business and finance and then did a degree in business and marketing. But my, you know, my life felt like a compromise after that. So there was no, at no point did I feel happy about whatever I was learning. I think there was some interesting bits to it and I had some interesting experiences and I've made lifelong friends. But in terms of the studying and the learning, it was, it was all compromise. And so, you know, I'm incredibly fortunate that I got to do, it took me to my mid-30s to start, to do something that I always wanted to do and absolutely loved doing. So one of the things going back to, you know, trying to help my own kid through this is to say, look, the GCSEs you have to get through. These are the most difficult exams you ever do. After that, hopefully, you're going to choose subjects that you have some interest in, because I've experienced studying subjects at A-level, which I have no interest in. And it's really, really tough. I mean, it's Sisyphus pushing that rock up a hill. In fact, it was two and a half rocks. It was the physics rock, <laughs> the maths rock, and half of the economics rock. <laughs> and it does, you know, then kind of impact the next few years. And also, I'm, I've met so many people now who, having studied one thing at university, then went back and retrained. You know, there's a friend of mine who did physics at, at, at degree level, who then did a, a year's accountancy foundation and, and switched to that. I think also my parents, and perhaps I was also brought up with that job for life idea, you know, that you go into a thing and that's what you do because that's who you are. And there are no jobs for life now. You know, the amount of time that people spend to become a doctor who've gone through that period of study, done it successfully, obviously, and then have come out of it to do something else, to do something that they love. So I think that trying to focus on and to ascertain the sort of thing that your kid is really interested in has been a big departure from the sort of advice that I got when I was a kid. So that's played a major part in those conversations. So do you think your parents were setting you up for a level of success so that they could sort of live vicariously through you? Or was it genuinely about trying to find something that would lead to your happiness. So being a doctor is inevitably going to make you happy in life because why wouldn't it? I think it's a mixture of the two. And I think that also, particularly as, you know, a British born kid of immigrant parents, you know, part of their focus was that they felt they weren't an accepted, fully accepted part of society. And their view was that if you're doing something that's essential, then you will become, you have a greater chance of being an accepted part of society. You've got skills that are transferable. And so wherever you go, you'll be able to fit in. You'll be able to fit in in a way that will be comfortable. So, you know, I don't have any bitterness towards them at all. I think that was a big part of their thinking. I think it was also vicarious because I think that they didn't have those opportunities when they were kids. They were slightly looking forward to living through that and respectability as well. And something about a job that is secure has respectability attached to it. And so for all those things, being settled, being kind of, you know, and therefore those things will make you happy because those were the things I think that were the greatest challenges for them and potentially led to their anxieties. And that's what you try to do for your kids. You kind of go, okay, how will you be less anxious in 20 years time? A 20 years that you can't, imagine i mean i don't think my son can imagine anything more than a year i think if that maybe a week <laughs> up to tomorrow. the next meal time <laughs> yeah, exactly exactly so you are trying to think for them but i think a lot of the time 
you know, the real tricky part of being a parent is trying to remove or being aware and then trying to remove your own sort of anxieties, foibles and fears from the equation. It's a really, really tricky thing because, first of all, you have to be aware of them. And most people aren't. I think knowing who you are is, is, you know, a lifetime's journey. And part of that is looking in the mirror and fessing up to what you're not good at. So your fears can absolutely drive you and they can absolutely drive your decisions for your kids. And so, you know, we don't see them necessarily as they're not really as kind of complete and fully made individuals. But whatever makes them individuals is going to be the thing that's going to drive them. And as you say, I mean, there's so much of that as a parent. I mean, I think anyone listening will be able to relate completely to that. Sort of your, your fears that drive you and oh, I don't want you to be like this because I avoid the mistakes that I made or me and your mother made when we were going through your stages. But similarly, I think it's based so much on experiences. I and mean, listening to you talk about your own childhood experiences reminded me of my mum. So I did a law degree and then obviously didn't go on to use it. And my mum was immensely proud of the fact that I was going to be a lawyer and they're good, solid working class people. And so this became the thing. When I then didn't go into law, I, like yourself, actually went into marketing and PR. She used to introduce me if ever we went out somewhere. This is my daughter-in-law, Michelle. She's a solicitor and her husband, my son. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, as an actor, the billing becomes incredibly important too. <laughs> Yeah, I was under gaffer, stagehand. I was. <laughs> <laughs> but it is so important, isn't it? That that sort of acceptance, as you say, is almost sort of the the introspective bit of what's driving me to try to push or direct my child in one way or another. And it can be positive and and well intentioned as well as obviously dark and stormy. Yeah, absolutely. I think, and that's why I don't hold any bitterness towards my parents. I think that, you know, all the decisions you know, they took at that time were the best to their ability at that time, given what they knew at that time. It's interesting, my mum, until relatively recently, actually, still carried a bit of guilt about that. And because she said, look, you know, you obviously were, were passionate about this. And it looked to us as, you know, the same sort of interest that everybody else has, which is, you know, films and music and sport and all that sort of stuff. Every kid has that and who doesn't want to be a film star or a rock star or a football player or whatever at a young age. And she said, we couldn't really see it beyond that. And I said, but, you know, mum, it's, it's worked out OK. And she said, but I still feel a bit guilty because, you know, we basically pushed you down a route that wasn't you. And that's what I mean about the full journey being the story, because, you know, obviously at that point during my, you know, O-levels, A-levels and degree, you know, the story was very, very different. And I graduated in 88. So it was about nine years later or so that I started acting. And so after that, the story's completely different. And so, you know, the story ending up well for me so far, then kind of illustrates the story that came before it, you know, there's a different context to it. And so again, you know, going back to, you know, my own kids, it's that, it's kind of going, do you know what, there's another bit of the story to come that is impossible to see. And so as long as you're, you know, in a healthy frame of mind and are open and adaptable and resilient, then it's fine. Whatever's going to come up will be fine. You know, if it's two steps back, fine, you'll deal with it. And I think that's the tricky thing, I think. And that's why, you know, in terms of 
holding it against certainly my parents. You know, I don't. I don't really. And so I've had extraordinary, the most extraordinary experiences. I mean, recently I went to a screening of the new Beatles film, which is being streamed at the moment, called Get Back. And I met Paul McCartney afterwards and we were having a chat. And I left that and I thought, yeah, Paul McCartney, the Beatles were a poster on my wall when I was 14. And now he knows who I am and I can have a chat with him. And that's extraordinary. So all the struggles I had retaking my A-levels, etc., are all part of the story. And so I can't change any and wouldn't want to change any one of those things. No, I mean, it would be very, very hard, very churlish to sort of look back and regret any of the life choices that led to the point where you were met Paul McCartney at a Beatles screening. I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, somebody kind of said, well, you know, you did the maths, you did the economics. What if you did geography instead? And if I go, well, if that butterfly wing effect means that I don't get to speak to Paul McCartney at a Beatles <laughs> documentary screening, then forget it. I'll take the, the maths, physics and economics. Hit me up with Newton's laws. So then as of looking back and, and thinking through what you've just been talking about there, with resilience being so important as well, that... I wonder how much what you've seen as a chancellor at University of Sussex sort of impacted and changed your views on what's important and the directions that kids take. Because we do feel, I think, a bit like there's a conveyor belt system that takes us from early schooling through GCSEs, A-levels and then university. And obviously it's not for everyone. But increasingly, I think there are significant numbers of young people who find themselves in those positions. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that, again, I think the university experience, which is not for everybody, and there's no guarantee that if you go to university, you will be a success. And if you don't go, that you'll somehow not be a success. There are enough examples of both. But I think that the overall macro university experience is the thing I think that is most effective. It's, it's you know, greater than the sum of its parts. You know, people go there ostensibly to study a subject fine they study it you have to be self-motivated get your dissertation in etc etc you have to make the classes on your own no one's going to get you up and get you there or give you breakfast in the morning unless you've got a butler or something i suppose but it's all the other stuff as well how you deal with the socializing how you deal with your own timetable you know if you're sharing a house you know the arguments i remember we had when i was sharing a house which was you know whose turn was it to buy the milk who used up more of the butter that we were all supposed to be... You know, all of those things are really key to how we then will function in the real world. So all of those things become incredibly important. Increasingly now as well, budgeting. You know, I was lucky enough to get a grant, a partial grant, for my first year. I think I blew that in the first month. And then I had to live off... I remember there was a market on a Saturday... If you went down there, just as the market was closing, you could just make an offer on the sort of meat and the veg and the rest of it. And I remember having blown my budget that I then lived off liver and potatoes for about two months. It was the cheapest thing to buy. It was the cheapest thing. to. But, you know, great learning experience for me. And so I think all of those things are absolutely key in that experience. So for me, you know, having done a degree, the industry in which I then worked in for a while... And also still now use elements of what I learned, especially in the marketing and the personnel stuff that I studied. I still utilize that now without thinking. So there isn't a direct correlation with what I studied as such, but it's all fed in. It's all really, really important. And I think, you know, the one thing I'm glad or I'm fortunate of is that 
I didn't lose my sense of a love of learning. I mean, it's easy to apply that to what I do now in terms of scripts and development and production. But there's a huge learning to be had there. And I kind of, I love that part of it. I love the collaboration. I love the learning. So despite my kind of checkered academic history, it hasn't kind of removed or squished my love of learning. Don't you think those are some of the biggest and best lessons that as parents we can impart upon our children actually that it is that life stuff and it is the fact that when you go to university you're going to need to learn how to make a vegetable stew last for four days or all of these kinds of things but absolutely at the crux of it is you're going to always be learning stuff and so how you can ignite and keep that going is of paramount importance I think. Yes, I do. Again, I don't think that's something that necessarily comes from schools. You know, again, it goes back to a self-worth issue. And I remember thinking years ago that, you know, when you're a kid, obviously, primarily your parents are the ones who tell you, you know, they give you your sense of approval, whether you've been good or bad or right or wrong. And then your teachers do. And then you go to university and your lecturers do or whatever, or you go into a job and your boss tells you. And then suddenly you go into a relationship and then you go, well, how do I... Where, at what point have you managed to work out your own self-worth? And so I think the knock-on effects from that are huge. And so, you know, involving the kids in discussions, particularly about their own future, I think is really key. I mean, the, the fact that they will not understand or may not understand or aren't ready to hear is part of it, is part of the communication. And so I think it's really important that they feel that they're a part of that. So nothing, you know, has felt like it's been sprung on them. And as I said, you know, they may not understand what you're saying or the point you're trying to make for a few years. It doesn't matter. The fact is that, you know, the topic was introduced. And again, you know, you're learning, they're learning. And, you know, one of the, one of the biggest things I learned as a parent, actually, was about myself. I learned more about my, you know, limits on my temper, you know, what wound me up, what were the stupid things that, you know, I would come up with with a justification for my thinking or a decision after I became a parent. You're not arguing with a peer. You're talking to someone who has less life experience than you, and yet you can hear yourself saying the dumbest things. And so all of those things, you know, I kind of learned more about myself, I think, after becoming a parent than I ever did before. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think you're absolutely right, that you're responsible, if not accountable, to this young person. And so, yeah, you do sort of retrospect I've, i can picture although i'm not going to embarrass myself with examples of times when you do that just think where did that even come from it's it doesn't make any sense to me it's not the kind of thing i would say but you wonder whether as children did you ever lose that sort of drive or need to have your parents approval I mean, just the other weekend i ended up digging up bits of the garden to plant blackcurrant bushes of all things and then phoned my dad to tell him I mean, he doesn't need to know that I've planted blackcurrant bushes any more than I really need to tell him. But there was just something in me that sort of <laughs> wanted to share and almost get his well done, son. <laughs> well, now I need to know what his reaction was. He's a Suffolk boy, so it was broadly the same reaction to everything. I've just won the lottery would be well done, yeah, son. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> broadly. <laughs> I think we are. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think who you choose to get your approval from is key. And I think, again, that's one of those self-worth things, actually, which is, I remember years ago thinking, gosh, I've just given everyone, everyone permission, everyone in the world permission to kind of ruin my day. Everyone. 
So someone could be critical, someone could be horrible, and I've given them permission. That's going to finish my day off. I'm now going to be upset. I'm going to be annoyed and the rest of it. And I step back from that. And so there are key people that I have chosen that I seek approval from because I value their opinion. I value their take on stuff. I know that they are hugely supportive of me. I'm not competing with them. You know, whether it's my parents or it's from the family or, you know, a key group of friends of mine, they're the ones also who can tell me I'm being a complete idiot as well because I'll believe them because they've got no dog in the fight. They're my friends. They're kind of, you know, they, they love me and I love them. And so that was a key part of me trying to wrestle control over my own self-worth was who do you hand that over to? And if someone's handed it to me, it's the hugest honour. I mean, it's kind of, you know, I take that seriously in terms of that respect and trust because I do think it has to be earned. And if someone is entrusting me with their self-worth, that's a really big deal because I can, I can destroy their day. I think that, you know, those kind of things in terms of ascertaining who you get your self-worth from, I think is really key and really important. Hmm. Isn't it also the case, though, that with our children, that actually there's almost a de facto agreement that as parents we're sort of providing that to our children. And so then the ways that we help and encourage and nudge and nurture is vitally important to them. Well, not just their their sense of self-worth, but also their approach and their levels of enthusiasm. Yeah, absolutely. I think where it's difficult is trying to spot the difference between someone. Say, for instance, I think there's a really fine line in terms of observation. I think there's a really fine line between someone who's genuinely disinterested and someone who's lazy. It's really difficult to spot that. I mean, it's kind of where does that line begin and end you know I think as a parent there's always that nagging thing of kind of you know you just need to try harder you just need to work harder I can quite easily apply that to myself you know sometimes it's difficult to know within yourself whether it's genuine disinterest or whether you're just being a bit lazy about it I became very aware that my biggest enemy was also my biggest friend which is my own imagination because in my head you know, I can feel like I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread. and I can think that I'm the biggest idiot in the world. And so neither of those things are true. But depending on what the situation is and where I find myself, I can convince myself of either of those things. And that's where you need good counsel. But you kind of you're aware of that when you're older. But, you know, trying to spot it in your kids is tricky. You know, sometimes there's a block that they have studying something that is very difficult to pinpoint exactly what it is. Because in the grand scheme of things, it could be something about the subject. It could be something about that topic. It could be the teacher. It could be their mates at school. Maybe they're all brilliant at this topic and you're the one person who doesn't get it and that's put you off it. And so all of these things become blocks. And so trying to pick out which one it is. And kids, I mean, their job is to be a kid. And so they don't know. They can't kind of deconstruct themselves, you know, psychologically and then tell you what it is. So it becomes a really tricky thing. That's part of the, the, the challenge of it. But one of the things that, you know, when I, when I looked into your study buddy was, you know, that there was a structure to it, actually, which was visual. And that was really useful because just to look at it, just look at it, at it from the outside, because there's a starting point for a discussion. And that's usually the most difficult thing to try to because you... As a parent, you start off with, you know, why did you get 20% in your exam? 
And in a way, that's really difficult for them to answer because it can be one of, you know, a hundred different things, you know, 50 of which we can both be aware of and 50 of which can, that can be hidden. So, you know, having something like your study buddy, how did you come up with that, by the way? It's meaning to ask you. That was a, a wit's end moment in parenting my own son. So when he was doing his GCSEs, found myself doing something I didn't think I would ever do, which was shout a lot, nag a lot. I think I've got a, a talent for it, to be fair, but it, it wasn't what I'd expected. So we had this situation where I'd be saying to him, are you doing your work? Are you, are you working hard enough? Because although he would do fine, his aspirations were huge and I didn't want him to feel let down by not having done his best. And he was a boy who was very good at procrastinating, but also I think had fooled himself into this position of thinking, if I don't really try, then I won't really have failed. And so I think that would have unraveled some of his own feelings of self-worth, to allude to what you were talking about earlier. And so this system was then about how can I take the emotion out of that conversation by finding out exactly what it is that he needs to do and when he needs to do it. So exactly as you say, actually, the conversations could then be so much more practical and pragmatic. Have you got enough pencils? Do you need more index cards? Do you need a bit more help with your maths or whatever else it might be, as opposed to a really judgment laden, don't you think you should be doing more, which is a conversation that goes nowhere. And as a parent, I find myself in that position of doing it even knowing at the back of my mind this is not helpful i know i'm not going to be helping him get the best out of himself by doing that yeah that's interesting isn't it because you're right i mean the conversation really the emotional conversation in those kind of situations is why aren't you doing better why have you given me the worry about you that seems to be the kind of umbrella of the conversation and that's really that's not impossible you're not heading towards a solution at that point and so you know I kind of saw the study buddy I don't know what I was looking for. I was probably looking for ways to help my son and what could I do when I came across it and I thought okay that's really interesting that's a kind of you know I remember spending uh, one of my great uh, you know I'm king of the procrastinators I mean I could sort of procrastinate for for Britain in fact it's a shame I didn't actually because I would have been really really good at that. my parents could have been very very proud Olympic, Olympic standard Olympic procrastination. Level, definitely. <laughs> Synchronised procrastination, that would be it. Wouldn't that be interesting? I've got a feeling we probably could. <laughs> I think we could, actually. I don't think it's too And late, if you could build that into some kind of pentathlon with, with maybe tangents, we could... Tangential <laughs> thinking. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And displacement activity, that could be another one of them. But, yeah, I mean, I remember when I was certainly at GCSE O-levels, I remember very late on, way too late, obviously, patently, that, you know, the design of my revision timetable, I think I spent more time on that than any given subject, yeah. you know, <laughs> fretting about how big it should be, whether it should be colour coded, how many boxes I should make. I mean, it was just ridiculous now. And obviously, it was just displacement activity. So that was the interesting thing when I came across the study buddy was oh, wait a minute, all of that has been done for me. That's great. And then the fact that the subjects are broken down, well, that's great because that's one less conversation, particularly, again, as a parent who is not studying the subjects that my son is studying. You know, and it's been a long, long time since I studied the majority of those subjects. So the way of teaching has changed. 
the way of methodology and approach has changed. And so me trying to kind of step in to say, oh, well, you know, what physics or chemistry homework have you got? Well, I can help you with that. No, I bloody can't. I, mean, I patently can't. I mean, I couldn't back then and I can't now. And so, you know, trying to keep up with what those subject areas are, what the topic areas are, are beyond me, you know, other than saying, look it up on BBC Bite Size or, you know, I, I can order a book, I suppose, for you. That's all I can do. So it was interesting looking at what I saw on your website, which was, you know, the structure. And as you say, you know, taking the conversation away from why have you given me this anxiety about you to make it a lot more focused and also less judgmental as well, because the judgment within it is never very far. And sometimes that's all they hear. I remember somebody talking about, I think it was cats, actually, was that if you reprimand a cat, a cat generally doesn't know why it's been reprimanded. It just remembers the reprimand. And that is it. So neither of you have actually learnt anything. You are the cat. Neither of you learnt anything from it. All the cat will remember is that, you know, you threw a shoe at it. That's it. And in a way, that it's trying to avoid that kind of conditioning within the arguments, moving away from that. No, absolutely. Should also point out probably that throwing shoes at cats or children is probably not advisable. I don't, I don't, we're not advocating that. Well, I grew up at a time when <laughs> Asian parents threw shoes at children <laughs> and, and the really smart kids kept them and then uh, opened up wholesale afterwards. <laughs> or predicted what the pull that gravity would have as to know when to duck. Well, the um, thing is, if you, so again, if you've been brought up on old cartoons and uh, Tom and Jerry, for instance, or Roadrunner, there was always a moment in both of those where Wiley e. Coyote or Tom the cat would draw up this kind of scheme for catching the mouse or the roadrunner, which included a graph and, you know, kind of opposite over <laughs> hypotenuse and an angle. And <laughs> there was some physics that went into it. So, uh, yeah, so I think there was a physics to shoot from. <laughs> but going back to bring us to the bronze in procrastination and tangent, <laughs> I fear. <laughs> as you say there's there is something in that if you can sort of move the conversation away from the sticking points the bits that are that are more destructive than anyone involved would want them to be then you can focus on the kinds of stuff that we know as parents we can do better at which is the aspects that help our children because we know them better than anybody else does so we can help them with that motivational bit with the like where are you headed and don't worry if it doesn't all go well but i think so many of us tend to get sort of fixated on that moment, as you say, which is the score out of the test or the fact that they're still on that phone. And why? Because TikTok's not actually that good. And so everything else sort of then gets lost into the ether. Yeah, it is a trap and it's a modern trap. And it's one that, you know, a dinosaur like me has to kind of adjust to because, you know, the kids have been born into an era of social media and the internet and smartphones and everything else. And I wasn't. So, you know, I can remember a time without these things. And the key component of those times were that we talked a lot more. And so one of the things now with our own lifestyles, if you're a working parent, you're at work, you know, you're at office, you come back, you're knackered, you have to kind of sort out the food for the evening, there's bills to pay, you need someone needs to call a plumber, the gutter's kind of blocked, and you get all of those things thrown in. 
And meanwhile, your kids are doing their job, which is they're going to school and they're coming back and they're doing their homework. And then suddenly, you know, you might get a phone call from the school or you get a letter from the school or you see their report or whatever. And suddenly it just feels like, you know, more work has been added to your already kind of full week. And so the thing that, that is missing from all of that, that there was more of, undoubtedly, sounding like an old codger now, was we had more time to communicate and converse. And in a way, it's trying to find those times again, because a lot of those, a lot of the tonality, I think, that comes from my arguing is actually just the weight of all the other stuff I have to do and the anxiety I have about a million other things that has clogged up my brain. So I don't have the clarity to be able to talk to the kid and remember that I'm talking to a kid and wait and listen to the kid's response. And sometimes, you know, we need an immediate response. You know, so when we kind of go, you know, why did you get 20% in your test? We want an answer. The I don't know is not good enough. And we don't have the space to kind of have the conversation that would lead us to where or why. And so, you know, anything that helps that. I kind of often think, you know, I try to be aware of these things now when I'm talking to my son. And, you know, he's a great kid. He's a really good kid. He's really good fun and he's smart. And there are some subjects that he excels in. There are some subjects that he struggles in. And so, you know, that's kind of normal. All of that is normal. And, you know, sometimes I have to try to kind of just remember that the tonality of my frustration is coming from 20 different places. It's not just about him. You know, if I had no anxieties in any other area, whether it be about work or money or, you know, other family members or, you know, family members being ill or, you know, any of those things. Deadlines for me, you know, there's a deadline to kind of hand a piece of work in or finish a script or something. I'm not able to finish it because I can't think of the ending. I'm frustrated. And at that point, I get, you know, I got 20% in you know physics or whatever it is and I'm not in the best headed a place to have that discussion at that point and I often think that if there was a member of the UN who was around at that point that person would probably step in at that point to kind of say like you go off have a cup of tea calm down make your head clear to have this discussion and so you know anything that helps those things in terms of you know self-awareness as a parent studying structures you know, all of those things will ultimately only help. It can't be worse. It can't be worse. You know, that is the baseline position that most parents are in. So, yeah, I think that, you know, self-awareness, I think, for parents is as key to this as understanding your child. That was fantastic. I could have happily chatted away to Sanjeev for hours, although at some point I think my envy of his glamorous celebrity lifestyle might have taken over. But that's also a great reminder, isn't it, that parents of every walk of life have the same ups and downs. We're all just trying to figure out how best to support our teens to achieve their best and, wherever possible, to follow their dreams. Many of us, like Sanjeev, will have been through a couple of iterations of finding our own path. And that's often a fantastic story to share with our kids. Life is wiggly, as you'll remember the fabulous Dominique Thompson told us way back in episode one. And those personal experiences can also help us to shape the kinds of encouragement 
and I include nudging and coercing, that we give our teens too. I thought it was great to hear Sanjeev talk so openly about his own parents' aspirations for him not necessarily being a good fit with what he was all about. I think that we can all relate to that situation in one way or another. His parents really just wanted the best for him and for him to be happy. And in the same way, Sanjeev naturally wants those things for his own son, as we all do. Now, the actual implementation of that might be very different. I'm fairly sure there'll be no directing towards the sciences in the Bhaskar household, if creativity, of course, is where their teens' interests lie. But the sentiment is still the same. And although we may not see ourselves as pushy, there is a benchmark that all parents have, and that's that our children simply do their best. Although, if you're anything like me, quite often that can feel like our little angels don't necessarily have quite the same aspiration for themselves. Although we might not see ourselves as pushy, there is a benchmark that all parents have, and that is that our children just simply do their best. Sometimes it can feel like our little angels don't quite have the same aspiration level for themselves, and that can be tough to handle at times. And you absolutely have to love Sanjeev's honesty here. There are times that we don't deal with situations, the I got a D in my test moments, in the calm ways that we might like to. You can't tell me that you've not been in that situation where you're in the midst of deadlines or juggling 101 things and being less than cool in the response. But that's how parenting and life go sometimes, isn't it? Something else that really struck a chord with me was hearing Sanjeev talk about approval and the importance of self-worth. Our young people have a lot to contend with at the moment. As we all know, in addition to the exams, there's still lingering uncertainty and a feeling that there's a lot to catch up on. This can weigh very heavily on our teens, and feelings of anxiety can start to have an impact on how they see themselves and what they think that they're capable of. This can become quite a dangerous cycle to get into. And I think this is one of the key areas that we can play a role as their parents. We can help them to see their own worth, help them to paint a brighter picture of where they could be, and even give them the spur on that they need to help with their studying. And that might not be actually sitting down and doing it with them. It might be in practical things like revision aids and helping with organisation, but paying an interest and making time are perhaps even more important things that we can offer. My thanks to Sanjeev for finding the time to chat with me and to you for listening. If you'd like to be on a future episode and share your own story, please do drop me an email. The address is hello at thestudybuddy.com. And if you're looking for ways that you can support your own young person to develop good, strong study skills in the approach to their GCSEs and A-levels, then why not head over to the Study Buddy website? There you'll find a whole host of information about our innovative time management and study organising approach. And you'll also find a blog packed full of useful articles, hints and tips. To find out more, why not make a beeline for thestudybuddy.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, as I hope that you have, I wonder, would you mind leaving us a review and, if it's not too much to ask, a five-star rating? It all helps us to reach other parents who, just like all of us, are looking for some way to make sense in the run-up to the exams. Of course, don't forget to share the link to this and other episodes on your social media weapon of choice. 
it's all greatly appreciated. There'll be another episode next week, so please don't forget to follow and subscribe to the Study Sessions podcast.